Luke chapter 10. This is a very famous section of scripture. You may have heard it before. It's called the Good Samaritan or the Good Neighbor. And many of us in our culture know the Good Samaritan. Um, you probably heard it on a newscast, you know, on national news. They'll tell you about everyone who died and, and all that kind of stuff. And then at the end, they'll say some good news. And then a story of the Good Samaritan. You know, somebody served somebody at great cost and expense to themselves. Or you know it as like uh, Allstate. Uh, that's their saying, you know, uh, like a good neighbor. Or no, Allstate, State Farm. <laughs> like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So it's kind of embedded in our culture. Uh, that being a good neighbor, being a good Samaritan is kind of like, you know, you should do that. Like nobody wants to wake up and go, man, I can't wait to be a terrible neighbor today. I'm going to make my neighbors absolutely miserable. And if that is you, uh-oh. But we're going to see the Good Samaritan very popular, very famous. Uh, even if you don't identify yourself as a Christian this morning, you're probably very familiar with at least parts of this story. So let's read it together starting in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. And so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. As we've seen, there are questions that are asked because of a genuine desire to know the answer and from a heart which is really wanting to know what it is that the answer is and all that kind of stuff. But there's also questions that you ask disingenuinely that just really want to trap the person you're asking the question. We've seen both in this series. This is the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This was not a genuine question. This is trying to expose Jesus. It says in verse 25 that the man, the lawyer, wanted to put Jesus to the test. And so this question is really meant to expose Jesus, to humiliate him. A lawyer is not a lawyer that you and I would expect uh, to understand a lawyer to be today. A lawyer today is an expert in the civil law, but a lawyer back in Jesus' time is an expert in the Mosaic law. And this expert in the Mosaic law knew the law inside and out. He knew all the ins and outs of all the things and how to apply them and what relates to what. And so when he comes to Jesus to put Jesus to the test, what he's trying to do is expose Jesus as a fraud or trying to expose Jesus as being ignorant as to the things of the law. So this great lawyer, knowing that he knows a great deal about the Old Testament law, wants to put Jesus on trial. 
And he asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The same question was posed of Jesus by the young rich ruler. And uh, we already saw the answer to that. Jesus answers one way there, but he answers a different way here. This is two different episodes, two different people, two different questioners, two different answers. But what Jesus does here is very interesting. I think it's a strategy that we would do well to learn. Jesus says to him in verse 26 on this question, he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What Jesus does is answer the question with a question. He asks a counter question. You see, you can learn a great deal about a person and the reason why they're asking you the question if you simply turn it around and you ask a counter question. And that's exactly what Jesus does. I think Jesus is doing this because he's trying to size up the lawyer. What kind of lawyer am I dealing with here? How well do you actually know the law? How much of an expert are you really? So let me ask you a question. You tell me, oh expert, what do you think the answer is to how we inherit eternal life? I think this is a good strategy because I personally have experienced this so many times and it has worked so well to help diffuse the situation and so that there can be a conversation which is actually profitable. I've been asked on many occasions what I thought was a genuine question, which was really just a test to try to expose me as being either a fraud or being ignorant about things. And I've learned over the years to never answer directly a question that's been asked of me. I instead answer the question with the question. Let me give you an example. These are real life things. In the past, I've been asked, Phil, what is your view on infralapsarianism? <laughs> Do you know what that is? Neither did this person. <laughs> I've been asked, what is your stance or how do you view God's aseity? What is the extent of the atonement in your belief? How would you unpack the hypostatic union? What do you mean by God's sovereignty? What is he sovereign over? And of course, the cherry on the top, the greatest of all questions, what is your view on election? So at times I'm asked from a genuine heart, like I really want to know. But oftentimes, to be honest, the reason why I'm being asked this question is because somebody's trying to expose me. They put me to the test. And so how I handle this question is I generally ask a question in return. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to gauge how much of an expert this person is in asking me the question. So when somebody asked me about infralapsarianism, my response was simply, oh, that's a really interesting question. Well, let me ask you, what's your take on the domestic view of uh, foreknowledge? <laughs> and then I realized immediately, okay, this person hasn't researched this. They've watched a four-minute YouTube video. <laughs> and they don't quite understand that Thomas Aquinas had a definite view on infralapsarianism and foreknowledge and things like that. And so I realized, okay, I can't go there with this person. I need to go over here with this person. Does that make sense? And so I can't use theological jargon. I can't use theological shorthand because that will create confusion. I need to start with the basics because unfortunately this person hasn't really researched the issue at hand. And so the same thing if somebody comes and, you know, talks about all kinds of stuff, sovereignty and election, all this kind of stuff, I'll generally say, and what part of the Belgic Confession do you find objectionable? <laughs> or do you think which, which aspect of the five articles of the Remonstrance adequately addresses the objections you have to the Belgic Confession? <laughs> And I'm not trying to humiliate anyone. I'm just going, okay, has this person researched this? Like deep, have you, have you done the work? Because if not, then we'll just take a step back and we'll just casually just kind of enter into the conversation together. Does that make sense? I'm trying to be as loving as possible because you know how humiliating it is 
to then begin to talk theological shorthand to people, and it's like, I, I don't know what's going on. You can't dialogue. And so we have to know where a person is before you can begin to talk. So you have to figure out how they, where they are based on the questions you ask. And so these questions help me assess where a person is. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's assessing where are you in the matter of the law, eternal life, and what you should do about it. And the man answers in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the lawyer provides a scriptural answer coming from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. But did you notice the answer? The answer is love God and love your neighbor. Now, a couple weeks back when we did the young, rich young ruler, we talked about how the, the question was, what should I do in order to inherit eternal life? And the answer Jesus gave was to quote the six commands of the, old, of the uh, Ten Commandments. Remember that? And we talked about how the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments are the horizontal obedience. That is how we go about loving our neighbors horizontally. And you remember Jesus didn't talk about the vertical love of God, which is the first four commandments. But here what we have is this man is summarizing the first four commandments, which is, which is vertical in nature. This is how you relate to God vertically, the first four commandments. And how you relate to others horizontally is the last six commandments. But he summarizes it as love God, love your neighbor. And so those two commands just simplify the Old Testament law. You've got to love God supremely and you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's just the summary. This isn't the first time we see Jesus doing this. Matthew 22, if you remember, in verse 34, it's Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and so they sent a lawyer to Jesus, and the lawyer asked Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law, verse 36? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, we can just simplify and distill what it means to obey the Ten Commandments as love God, love your neighbor. Vertical, horizontal. You tracking with me, church? Okay. But when we get to Luke chapter 10 and we see this interaction, he answers correctly but that's not it. Jesus says this, look, you have answered correctly. Jesus commends the man. That's right. Good job. You got that right. And he says, do this and you will live. And so the summation of obedience is love God and love your neighbor. But it's not just sometimes. The implication here is perfectly. Love God perfectly. Love your neighbor perfectly. Uh, well, that's kind of hard. No, it's not hard. It's impossible. Because as Jesus says, you're evil. <laughs> Remember that when he said that? Like, fathers, which of you being, you know, give your son when he asks for a bread, you give him a serpent? So what do we do with this? I think what happens is this man hears the response. Yes, Jesus says, yes, you're absolutely right. That's right. You know the answer. But let me ask you this another question. Knowing the answer, do you actually do it? Do you actually do it? You see, for Jesus, 
Having right answers doesn't necessarily mean you know God. Just because you know what is true doesn't mean you actually know God. And I don't understand this, but in our Christian subculture, for whatever reason, we always try to pit the life of our mind against the life of our heart. We always try to do that. And, and rightly so, because we'll read something like this and we'll say, oh, see, see, Jesus is saying it's not what you know, it's who you know. And we put that on a bumper sticker and we're like, yeah. But then we have to realize, well, wait a minute. It's not about don't know anything, just know God. Who's God? What is he like? What does he do? And once you answer those questions, you're starting to claim to know stuff. You see what I'm saying? So it's not about know nothing, just know God. It's, it's about, no, 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 you need to know God, but you also need to have the heart, which is properly oriented towards God. And so in our Christian subculture, we sometimes divide it, and it's like, well, are you a head person, head knowledge, theology, or are you a love person? Love, love, I just love everyone. <laughs> love, serve, oh, just passion, and oh, I just feel it. And I'm saying, why in the world, brothers and sisters, do we divide those two things as if they're completely separate things and one is better than the other? Clearly, Jesus teaches, know me and love me, which means we need to know the truth, which will set our hearts aflame. And as our hearts are inflamed by what we know, we turn back and go, I got to know more because my heart's aflame at what I know. And when I know it and feel it, I do, I do, do you see what's happening? So I don't know why we settle for either being, you know, mental people or emotional people. I go, no, 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 no. Jesus demands that you have logic, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, logic on fire. You have passion, but you also know things. But I think what's happening here is when you read verse 29, something is exposed here. It says, but he, this lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Trying to justify himself. Another way to say that is he's trying to save face. He's trying to not humiliate himself. He's not, he's not wanting to be exposed. And Jesus has done that. And I think what happened is Jesus says, yes, you know the right answer. Good for you. You know it. But are you obeying it? And see, this whole time the lawyer thought he was going to expose Jesus. And then Jesus flips the script and said, no, 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 no. You're not exposing me. I'm exposing you. Are you perfectly obedient and loving God and loving your neighbor? Uh, so the man sought to justify himself. I got to get out from this. You see, when we feel the weight of conviction, what ends up happening is we try to change the subject. So think of John 4, Jesus talking to the woman at the well. Jesus says, you've had many husbands, implying sin of some kind. And what does she do? She flips it. Let's, let's talk about worship. You and I do the very same thing. The moment we feel the weight of conviction for our sin and our shortcomings and our, long, our, our law breaking, what we end up doing is we go, oh, this is uncomfortable. I don't like this. Okay, we need to change, change the subject. Do this. And so the man tries to do that. He tries to change the subject by asking this question, who's my neighbor? Because the conviction of sin was upon him. The conviction of sin that he is a lawbreaker and he's not perfect. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Galatians 3 verse 10 where he writes, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It's not just that you know what is written in the book of the law, it's that you do them perfectly. And if you fail, you are subjected to the law's curse. The weight of sin and guilt is the evidence that you are a lawbreaker and the curse of God is upon you. And when we feel that, we try to change the subject. Well, you're calling me a sinner. Look at that guy. That guy's worse than me. Do you think him being worse than you is going to get you to heaven? What are you thinking? You got pulled over for speeding, 60 miles an hour in the 35. Yeah, but people go 80. <laughs> Do you see how silly that is? But then Paul writes about the good news where he says in Galatians 3 verse 13 that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law is death, being sent to hell, separated from God. But Christ has redeemed us from that curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, Jesus bore our sins, which is our inability to be perfect according to God's law. And Jesus became our substitute by dying on a cross to bear the full curse of law-breaking, namely the wrath of God. So that if we repent of our sins, which is repenting from disobeying God's law and repenting from thinking that we're good enough to keep God's law, and we place our faith in Jesus as our Redeemer and our Rescuer from God's wrath, then He will save us and we will have life. And we will be free from the condemnation of the law. We will be free from the curse of the law. We will be set free to have new life. But the question is, what kind of freedom does that look like? What what, what kind of freedom does God have in mind? Galatians 5.13, where the Apostle Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when you put the theology correctly and you put it together, what you have is you, all of us, are under the weight of the curse of sin. We have all transgressed against God's law. We are all objects of God's wrath, but... Because of the great love in which God has loved us, he sent Jesus to bear our sins and also bear the curse of God so that the wrath of God is poured on him, not on us, because he's our substitute. And we've been set free from the weight of sin, set free from the wrath of God in order that we can use our freedom to love our neighbors. Did you guys follow that? God has the aim of loving our neighbors in our salvation. God has saved us so that we can love others. But if you notice this man, he's not surrendering to Jesus. He's not submitting himself to Jesus. He's not repenting of his disobedience. Instead, he's trying to justify himself. Oh, yeah, but... And so he asked the question, who's my neighbor? 
And I think what the man is trying to do in justifying himself, not only is he trying to change the subject, but I think this man is looking for loopholes. You know what I'm talking about? Looking for loopholes. Are there any loopholes in the law? How can I get around this conviction I'm feeling? How can I justify myself and save face in front of all these people? So you and I naturally assume that people who look for loopholes to get out of stuff are like the rebellious, anti-authoritarian type people. Like, yeah, these rebellious people, they're trying to get away from the law. That's no. Rebellious, anti-authoritarian people, they don't even bother with the law. Why would you look for loopholes? You're going to break the law, just send your brains out. Who gives a rip? Instead, it's not the outright rebellious, anti-authoritarian people who look for loopholes in the law. You know who it is who looks for loopholes in the law? Legalists. It's the people who are asking the question, how far can I push this before I cross the line? See, I still want to keep the law, but I kind of want to do stuff I want to do too. I saw this most evident when I was a youth pastor. High school kids, even college kids would come up to me. They're in a dating relationship holding hands with their loved one who they're going to marry and travel the world with. (laughs) At the ripe old age of 16. (laughs) And they come up to me and they'll ask me this kind of question. These are real life questions. Pastor Phil, we have a question for you. How far do you think is too far physically in our relationship? Our relationship is like this, and they'll explain it to me. Do, do you think that's too emotionally, like, connected? Or they'll say, I know people whose relationship looks like this, and they're Christians, but, but we're thinking maybe our relationship should look like this. What, what do you think? What do you think we should do? Do you know what these kids are doing? Looking for loopholes. How can I still be a Christian and send my brains out? How can I do... All the selfish stuff I want to do and yet, you know, like not get in trouble about it. You know what question they're not asking? Pastor Phil, in our relationship, how do we maximize glorifying God? I've never been asked that. So my response is typically this. You two know that by asking me the question, you are showing me what your motivation is, right? And they will say, well, what do you think our motivation is? And I said, your motivation is to try to get away with what you're doing, get away with uh, the things that you're doing. And do you realize that the fact that you're asking me this very question, that by your question itself, you're showing me that you're already living in sin? The question itself is your accuser. You've already gone too far. And usually they go to the next person and ask them their advice. So here's the lawyer trying to justify himself, looking for loopholes. But also when you look at the question, and who is my neighbor, he's, he's saying, like, look, I understand some may be my neighbor, but, but who's my neighbor? Implying that there may be some who do not qualify as neighbor. There may be some out there who I can just say, okay, these are neighbors, I'll love them, but these ones, pfft, they're not neighbors. So he's implying, and it might suggest... He has to love some, but not necessarily everyone. 
And he's quoting Leviticus 19. So let me read it for you. I skipped it earlier, but here we go. Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18. This is from the law. Moses writes, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear, bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When you take these two verses, you would see, ah, neighbor means your brother, your own people. In other words, my neighbor is my fellow Jews. So I need to love my fellow Jews. Everyone else? Eh. This man's not a good lawyer because he didn't read the rest of the chapter. Leviticus 19, verse 33, 34. When a foreigner rides, um, resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Uh-oh. So you mean my neighbor is not only my own people, but everybody else as well? Yes. Even the foreigner. Now, before you are crafting in your mind a nasty email to send me <laughs> about how I'm letting my politics influence the pulpit, let me tell you this. I have quoted scripture today. This scripture is the backdrop for what Jesus is about to say regarding the Good Samaritan story. I am in no way motivated in quoting this verse for political reasons. I am not pushing a political agenda by quoting this, pa this passage. What I'm concerned with is teaching the Bible accurately. I'm concerned with the glory of God. I'm concerned with the text of Scripture. And if it makes you uncomfortable because I read Scripture, then so be it. For the Bible must shape our politics, not the other way around. So, whatever your political views are, set them to the side. And ask the question, did not the Bible say, love the foreigner among you? And the answer is yes. Neighbor love, therefore, includes people that don't look like us. Neighbor love means we should love people that don't sound like us or speak the same language as us. Neighbor love means that we must include people that don't vote like us, think like us, or live like us. Neighbor love means that we do not love people based on how it is comfortable or easy or preferential for us, we must love them regardless of who they may be. But we must also remember that love is not some ooey-gooey nonsense free of all pain and sorrow and confrontation of sin. We've already discussed that. Love is sacrificial. Love is costly. And to love our neighbors is to be like how God has loved us when we were so undeserving, when we did not want him and we thought we did not need him, God loved us anyway. And so, you and I, brothers and sisters, must be careful that we don't limit who our neighbor is, but we must go where the Bible takes us. So who is my neighbor is the question. Here's what Jesus does. He answers it by giving this vivid picture, this story. He says, verse 36, 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, 
leaving him half dead. Let me give you some backdrop to this story. The road, the Jericho Road as it was known, is a rocky desert terrain road that descended about 3,600 feet in elevation and only 17 miles. It was known as a very treacherous and brutal road. In fact, when Jesus started telling this story, everyone who would have been there hearing this would have known immediately, ooh, the Jericho Road, yeah, I know that is not a good neighborhood to be in. And so it wouldn't shock them that a man gets beaten and robbed and left half dead on this road. That is a common occurrence. But the question is, what will happen to this man? And so Jesus introduces us to three candidates who are going to love this beaten, robbed, half-dead man. And the first is from verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. To go down the road from Jerusalem is, what, what that means is you're not going north or south. What you're doing is going down in elevation. And since Jerusalem is built on a hill, to go down is to go from Jerusalem. So the priest is leaving Jerusalem, meaning that he has just finished doing his priestly duties. He's just finished worshiping Yahweh at the temple, done everything that is prescribed in the law. And after he got done worshiping God in the temple, he finds this person beaten, robbed, and half dead. And what does he do? Passes by on the other side. That candidate fails. Next candidate, verse 32, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. The Levitical people were the typical temple workers. They were gatekeepers, they were musicians, they were janitors. They were, cent- they were a central part of the worship life of the Jewish people at the temple. And if anyone would probably stop and help somebody, it would have to be the priest and the Levite. They just got done worshiping God at the temple. You know, the same God who says, love me and love your neighbor. And yet each man passes on the other side. Now, there's a lot of sermons that will tell you about why they passed on the other side. I'm not concerned with that because Jesus has one purpose he's trying to communicate with this parable, and it's this. You can't love your neighbor if your heart is callous. That's the point. In the Old Testament, there was a a, a grouping of three people, and you always see this. It's the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the people. Priest, Levite, rest of the people. And that's how most of the Old Testament describes the nation of Israel. It's the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the people. And so if you were a good Jew listening to this story, you would conclude, okay, the priest, we've already talked about that. The Levite, we've already talked about that. So now we're going to be introduced to just a regular old Jewish person who's going to help this man. But that is not what Jesus does. Jesus says, verse 33, but a Samaritan. And when he uttered those words, his audience would have gasped. What? Because Samaritans were understood to be outsiders. They were half-breeds. The Jewish people at this time considered Samaritans undisciplined, lazy, ungodly, sinful, wretched, and cursed. They were the exact kind of people who would never help somebody else. They're despicable. And so Jesus says, but a Samaritan. (gasps) Did he just say what I thought he said? As he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. I love that word, compassion. It's the same word the book of Mark uses to describe how Jesus felt when he saw sinners. And so we see the Samaritan is more like Jesus 
than either the priest or the Levite. And it says that he went to him and bound up his wounds. He healed him, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. What this Samaritan does shocks everyone. At great expense to himself and at great sacrifice, he loves this man. Now, you may not get this because we don't live in a whole Samaritan Jew kind of environment today in America. So I'm going to paint another picture, true story. Let's imagine for a moment that we're living in the South during the Jim Crow era, 1940s and 50s primarily. And you hear about a young teenage black boy who finds a white woman, young woman, beaten and robbed in an alley in the South. Think of that situation for a moment. What should he do? What should he do? You see, if he scoops up this white woman and takes her to the hospital and he pays for her medical bills, that may not go well for him. And yet if he ignores her, it would betray his Christian conviction. So what should he do? Well, the true story is this. That young teenage black boy scooped up that white woman, brought her to the hospital, and in doing so was accused by the town of being the one who beat her, and they lynched him. Let that linger for a moment. At what cost are we willing to love and serve others? You see, that black teenage boy helped that white woman in the Jim Crow South. It wasn't just risking social outcry. That boy was risking his very life, and he knew it. Now, just imagine that he is the son of sharecroppers, which means he is under, living under legal slavery. He has no money of his own, really, and yet that man, that boy pays the medical bills of this white woman. Think of how deep and costly that kind of sacrifice and love was. And what Jesus is saying is, this is the way you love your neighbor. This is how you love. There will be cost. There will be sacrifice involved. But we, for whatever reason, have it in our minds that love should be easy and we should love those who deserve to be loved. And yet Jesus, if we remember, said, if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? If you welcome only those who welcome you or you greet only those who greet you, what more are you doing than the others? Matthew 5, 48, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Many of us feel probably the tinge inside of us even right now that maybe conviction is setting in. Ooh, I'm not loving like that. I don't love my neighbor that deeply, that costly. And maybe you're also now suspecting that following Jesus is far more important and far more sacrificial and far more costly than merely attending awesome rock concerts and having Christian bumper stickers. 
Maybe there's something more to the Christian life than merely claiming your miracle and embracing your destiny. Maybe following Jesus demands more of you than merely eating better and being more physically fit and detoxing the negativity surrounding you. Just maybe Jesus is saying this, if you don't love your neighbor, even when it costs you, especially when it costs you, you cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 27. Is that possible? Could Jesus actually be asking us to live like this? Well, it's not just that he might ask us to live like this. He did. He did. Verse 36. Having said that and shocked everyone, he let the story linger. And then he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Do you see what Jesus does here? He asks a better question. You're asking who's my neighbor. But you need to realize every human being made in the image of God is your neighbor. But there's a better question we need to ask ourselves. Are you like the Samaritan? What kind of neighbor are you? Oh. So church, what kind of neighbor are you? You see, we're not given the privilege of deciding who is qualified to be a recipient of our love. We don't have the right to withhold love to our neighbors. We cannot control who our neighbors are, but we can control how we love them. Jesus says, okay, since it's the one who shows mercy, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. I wonder what, if you're here today and, and you don't identify as a Christian, I wonder what you're thinking right now. Use your imagination for a moment. And let me ask you this question. If everyone in the world lived like this Samaritan, what kind of world would that be? And even if you're not a Christian here, let me ask you this question. Is that the kind of world you would want to live in? I would. And now you understand why we as Christians, why we must share the gospel. Now you understand why we do missions. And now you understand why we desperately want people to know Christ. It's because that kind of world is the kind of world we're all longing to live in. You see, if I stop the sermon right here and we admire the Good Samaritan story for how it motivates us to action, if we stop here and we start feeling, man, I feel convicted, I'm going to go out and love my neighbor better, I'm going to be better. If I stop the sermon right here, all I've done is preached moralism to you. 
All I've done is told you, you better go do this. You need to be better. You're not good enough. But if you did this, everything will be great. But here's the reality. Morality doesn't change anyone's life. Morality does not change culture, society, or the way in which we live. It may change it for a moment. Today, you may be motivated to go love and serve your neighbor. By Thursday, you're done. (laughs) You ran out of gas. You don't have what it takes. So if I stopped preaching the sermon here and I've only preached moralism, I have stopped short of preaching the gospel. I have told you to try harder, be better, and we need to do this. And so you may leave trying harder and doing better and doing the things we talked about. But here's the reality. Eventually you will find out that you are actually one giant failure. By Thursday, you're going to have opportunity to love your neighbor, love your coworker, and you're going to fail, and then you're going to be devastated by your failure. Or you're going to know that you need to do a better job, and so you're going to leave here, man, I'm doing a better job. And then by the end of the week, you do retrospection, you're laying your head on the pillow, and you're like, man, how have I done? Oh, my gosh, I haven't been very good. And then you'll say, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? I quit. Or doing this stuff, loving sacrificially. Pretty soon you'll just run out of gas in the sense that you'll say, you know what, this is costing too much. This is too hard. And so moralism won't change you. It will exhaust you and frustrate you and cause you to be living in despair. So instead, let me give you the gospel. That when you fail, Jesus Christ has purchased forgiveness for you. So run to grace. And when you realize you haven't done better as you ought to have, run to Jesus, and he will supply you with the grace of new desires. And when you will feel like you want to throw in the towel, run to Jesus, for he will supply you with the grace of perseverance. Because only Jesus can supply these kinds of grace, and only this kind of grace can cause you to love your neighbor as you ought. Why? How? Do not be enamored with the Good Samaritan. Be enamored with Jesus because Jesus is the better neighbor. You see, the Good Samaritan story is about a neighbor who loved, served, extended mercy, and healed. But Jesus does all those and more. You see, Jesus has loved us. We know this, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God has demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so here's the sequence. Once you come to grips and you begin to enjoy and delight in the fact that Jesus has died for you, That you will in turn say, man, that overwhelming love that I experienced in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus poured out for me in the forgiveness of sins. The infinite pouring out of his love and grace into my heart will overflow into the hearts of others. And I will love graciously and costly to others because the limited supply of love I have in my own power, which will be extinguished in about a week, Instead, through the love of God and the grace of God, I am supplied infinitely so. For the love of God is poured into my heart and therefore out of my heart will flow love to others. It's inexhaustible kind of love. You can't get that anywhere else but the gospel. 
So Jesus is the better neighbor because Jesus loves us and gives us grace in our time of need. Jesus is a better neighbor because Jesus serves us. Remember this from Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we learn that as Jesus served us and giving his life for us, so too we should go and do likewise. Let us serve our neighbors. It is not our own life. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. Christ has purchased us, and by his purchasing of us, he commands us to live his life through us. So serve. And so Jesus is the better neighbor because he served us in our brokenness and sin by giving of his life to rescue us from the wrath of God. Jesus is the better neighbor. Jesus is the better neighbor because he extends mercy to us. Titus 3, 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You and I have been saved not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we worked for it. We've been saved because of God's sheer mercy. And likewise, we should go and do likewise to others. That even if people don't deserve our costly affection and our loving service towards them, we are to be people known as merciful people. And because God has been merciful to us, we likewise will be merciful to others. But you will throw in the towel if you try to do this in your own power. Instead, you must repent and believe the gospel and allow the grace of God to flood your heart and mind and equip you through the Holy Spirit to empower you to love and serve others for his glory and your joy. There's the only way to do that is the gospel. So Jesus is the better neighbor because he extends mercy to us. And Jesus is the better neighbor because he heals us. Like the good neighbor, he heals us, our wounds, we read it in 1 Peter 2, 21. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judged justly. And here it is. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that is the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus died not as your eternal flu shot. Jesus died to heal you of your sin, to take upon himself the wrath of God to substitute himself for you. Why? So that you could die to sin and live to righteousness. Which means if you do not surrender yourself to the lordship of Christ and repent of your sins and believe in the gospel that Jesus is crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins, then you don't have the ability to die to your sins and to live to righteousness. You don't have the ability to live in freedom in order to love your neighbor as you ought. That only comes through Jesus liberating us from the bondage of sin and healing us. And Jesus, being the better neighbor, has done that. 
Jesus is the better neighbor because he heals us, he extends mercy to us, because he serves us, because he loves us. One of the fears I have, brothers and sisters, is this. That some people will want to love and serve their neighbors, not ultimately for the glory of God, but for their own glory. They will want to love and serve, and they want to Instagram it. But here's the reality. The Bible is very clear about this. You're not to let the left hand know what your right hand is doing. You're to make sure that your service and your love and your prayer and your, and your giving and all this kind of stuff is done in secret so your heavenly Father will see and will reward you so that way you're not doing it for the applause and praise of man. So may it never be we at Golden Hills ever do our service, our love, our merciful acts of obedience or that we try to heal people emotionally or whatever out of some kind of idea that we're going to wear our Golden Hills t-shirts and we're going to Instagram it and put it on Facebook Live and show the world just how loving we are. We're not going to do that because that brings glory to us and we should be profoundly concerned for whose glory is. So we do things in his name We do it for Christ, we do it in Christ, we do it through Christ, so that in Christ, Christ alone gets the glory, and in him getting the glory, you will find your inexpressible and glorious joy. That is our call. So Father, we, having heard your word, are asking you, for your grace, that we are repenting of our sins, that we have broken your law or that we think that we have the power to obey it, but we've been told that apart from Christ we can do nothing. And so we ask God that you would be pleased to unleash the Holy Spirit in this church so that we would be empowered and equipped to love our neighbors as ourselves so that you would work through us to love and to serve and to extend mercy and to heal those who are hurting, to heal those who are separated from you, to welcome graciously into your presence those who have been lost, the least of these, and those who are last. So God, would you do in our church far more than we ever thought or imagined? Would you work? Would you work? But ultimately, may you get the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.